3: Hello, and welcome back to the Napoleonic Wars podcast and to another installment of War of 1812 Month. The crime and punishment nerd in me is really quite excited because the unit that we're going to be discussing today has been featuring on my radar for a heck of a long time. We're going to be discussing the West India regiments in the War of 1812. For those of you who aren't familiar, these are predominantly staffed with, well I kind of call them the quasi-slave units in the British Army because they are largely staffed, and I've been corrected on this already this morning, so interesting discussion point there, but they're predominantly staffed with slaves that are brought in on the slave ships uh, and then forcibly enlisted. But they play a pretty key role in the War of 1812. They're not just used on garrison duty. And to help me unpick this, I'm joined by the brilliant Tim Lockley. Tim is professor and head of history, so a hugely busy guy at the University of Warwick. He has an MBE, congratulations on that, um, and is author of Military Medicine and the Making of Race, on, which is on the West India Regiments. He's also author of Maroon Communities in South Carolina and Lines in the Sand, Race and Class in Low Country, Georgia. Tim great to have you on the podcast. Welcome. How are you doing?
4: I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me on.
3: Oh, pleasure. Uh, Like I said, in the the kind of the warm-up, if you like, you know, I've been meaning to talk to you for quite a while because there's there's a lot that fascinates me about these units. Let's start with sort of the nuts and bolts of what makes up the unit. Um, And already I've had my eyes opened on this. You know, these are kind of as I said at the start, you know, quasi-slave units, it's an effective form of conscription, it feels to me. There's this kind of enlistment straight off the slave ships. My understanding is there is no choice in this. And sure, these these men are freed at the point of enlistment, but what's the rationale behind making up the force in this way?
4: Well, when the British decide that they need um, a force of black soldiers, they don't initially think of buying them from slave ships. Uh, they initially try to recruit them locally, both in on the islands from planters and from captured islands um, from the French. Uh, they don't do desperately well at that. Uh, planters are generally reluctant to give up their slaves to the army, understandably, uh, lose control of them. And so when the regiments are initially founded in 1795, uh, it takes two to three years for the army to hit upon the idea of just buying them straight from slave ships. So, you know, the choice element is um, the the choice that is made by army recruiters. It's not by the men themselves. So some men of a certain age and a certain height, I mean, there's very specifications that are are written down, um, are told to go and stand over there. (laughs) And they get basically put into regiments. Um, They're not quite freed at that point. They are... Their status, their slave slash free status is very unclear. Uh, What's clear is that the army doesn't treat them like slaves in the sense that the army never sells anyone. It buys people, but it doesn't sell people. Um, And eventually in 1807, I think, all all of these people are formally freed. Um, But it it never treats them like slaves, like a planter would. They buy and sell them. It doesn't do that. but obviously, there's an element of coercion in, in that system. Um, and they, they are sort of organised into these uh, regiments. There are uh, 1.12 West India regiments. Um, so there's quite a lot of them, and they're spread out all over the Caribbean. Um, and the reason that the British initially thought that they needed black soldiers um, is sort of several fold. Um, when I wrote my book on um, military medicine... My argument is that it's all to do with medicine and it's all to do with how race and medicine are intertwined. So, the key factor here is a new strain of yellow fever that arrives in the Caribbean in 1793, absolutely devastates European regiments, uh, wiping out huge swathes of them. uh, And if they don't actually kill them, it debilitates large numbers of them. And there are already pre circulating ideas amongst army surgeons, and therefore amongst the army command, that black people are more resistant to yellow fever than white people. Now, there's a straightforward epidemiological reason for that. Uh, Yellow fever is endemic in West Africa. Uh, If you get yellow fever as a child, it's generally a mild and survivable disease, and you get immunity. So people brought over from Africa, having had yellow fever as children, are immune to yellow fever on the whole. Europeans coming from Europe where there's no yellow fever, never experienced yellow fever before. Yellow fever is particularly virulent and has its most devastating effect on young men. It's one of those diseases that impacts the sort of 20 year olds much more severely than it does other um, uh, segments of the population. So uh, they've got this massive problem. They think they've got a solution. Then the French start doing exactly that. They start arming um, formerly enslaved people um, to fight the British in places like Guadeloupe and Martinique and in um, Saint-Domingue. And so the British feel they've got no option but to do the same. And that's the sort of rationale behind the creation of the West India Regiments in the 1790s. Um, and the British army is very thorough and it, it buys thousands and thousands of men from the slave ships. And, and I think you can say categorically that the largest slave owner in the hemisphere is the British Army in 1800, which is a, is a, something that probably not many people know.
3: I mean, that's something to shake people up, isn't it? You know, the, <laughs> that's not a, yeah, a statistic largest, that we often.
4: The largest, richest planters would maybe own a thousand slaves. The British Army's got ten or twelve thousand men under its which it's, which it's purchased, and it spends millions of current, in, in, even in contemporary money, millions of pounds on it.
3: That's staggering. Um, the immediate question that arises from this, though, is kind of you—you're you, creating these black regiments fundamentally. Sure, they're staffed by white officers. We'll, we'll discuss about the officers in, in a second. Um, but you're also using them to maintain control, right, and project power into a community that is predominantly made up of slaves, proportionately. So, are there kind of concerns about? What happens if you don't treat these men properly and suddenly there's a mutiny and, you know, you've trained these men in how to use weapons. What happens if they then, you know, break away and start to educate the local slave community and you end up with an uprising?
4: Yeah, the the fear of exactly that happening, that you're basically play, placing armed black men in, in a society of predominantly black men or women, um, is one that planters talk about all the time. They're terrified that these large numbers of uh, actively armed, well-trained men are gonna be stirring up the local enslaved population. Um, there's very, very, very little evidence that that happens. So there's some fraternization between the two groups, but it's very low key. It's often to do with you know, um, economic transactions sometimes, and sometimes, or other times it's like um, West India Regiment soldiers taking local women as wives, effectively. <clears throat> But what you do get is, um, and the army never, never believes this, never, never, never buys into this narrative. The army says, no, you give these men pay, because they're all paid, even from the earliest days, these men are paid. Um, you give them a uniform, you give them weaponry and training, and they will fight for the empire. They will fight on our side. And they're right, because we, we, we've we got numerous examples going a bit beyond our time here, but... Um, of West India regiment soldiers having no compunction at all at facing down slave rebellions. So Barbados in 1816, in Demerara in 1823, um, in uh, the Morant Bay rebellion in 1865, they're constantly on the side of the imperial authorities and the army. Then they never once their loyalties never once an issue. But the mutinies that occur, and there are several key mutinies, there's one in Dominica in 1802, there's one in Jamaica in 1808, there's one in Trinidad in 1837, um, are much more about local conditions, and the one in Dominica, for instance, is about basically these soldiers haven't been paid for a long time, and then they're being used to do what they consider to be the work of slaves. They're being used to clear swamp lands, clear brush lands, and that kind of stuff. And they're basically saying this isn't the work of a soldier, you, and and they 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 get pushed over the edge. And even though there are reprisals and a lot of the mutineers are executed, and the entire regiment, the Eighth is the Eighth West India Regiment, is disbanded um the army says this was the, the people who were at fault were the white officers who abused the soldiers and they they say i this is never going to da- make me doubt the loyalty of the rest of the regiments that this was this was an unfortunate incident that but they were actually there was justification for it this wasn't an unjustified you know rebellion um so that tension between loyalty to um unit or to a wider imperial idea and loyalty to a race i think is a really interesting idea and there's very little evidence that the men who were recruited into the army had any affinity with the people who were enslaved on plantations that they didn't see themselves as fellow africans for instance i don't think that is is something that is is the case at all
3: is there an is there also an argument to be made that if you are one of these soldiers and you look around you at what's going on in the slave community, you can see the brutality that's being acted upon you. And that's not for one second to um, ignore the fact that the British army flogs. So it can absolutely be a brutal environment if you ever step the mark. But that, in some respects, perhaps if you're a soldier, you have a better life than if you're a slave on a plantation.
4: You, I think that's definitely true. I think so, soldiers would look at what slaves experience and they will, as they march around these islands, they will see s- slaves gibbeted alive. They will see that the heads on pikes of slaves who've been um, killed or executed. The the casual brutality, which we know is documented in police, people like the diaries of Thomas Thistlewood, um, the, the rape and all that kind of stuff is going on. It makes the army look like a paragon of virtue, and even though we know the army is a violent place, um, it's also violent for white soldiers. But it's but plantation slavery is worse in almost every respect, and the fact that you are you've got in a way the protection of the British army behind you, and you've got a uniform, and you have pay, which you can then use to you know buy things, um, buy trink- treats, trinkets, whatever you like. Um, I think puts them on a, just a di- completely different level.
3: And in relation to, so one of the, the big things that underpins a lot of the, the thinking at this time is, of course, martial race theory. Mm. Um, uh, can you, I, I guess the first thing to do is to just kind of give our listeners a bit of a sense of what that is, because some of them won't be familiar, but also how kind of key in, is that in the selection of these men? You know, I think we were saying before the start, You know, there are selection criteria that are, are placed on on these individuals, that it is very kind of key. But are they picking people based on the regions that they come from, or is it purely about physical attributes?
4: So so this is the idea that there are certain parts of the world where uh, the men are super well-trained into um, doing um, martial activities throughout their entire life. And those are the people you want to recruit. So in Africa, it's the people who, they're often described as the Coromanti, but they are from sort of the Akan region of Ghana. Those are the people who you want to recruit. And sometimes those in charge of recruitment say, we need to look for these type of people because they'd be great. Um, The evidence we have, though, of where these men actually came from, and it's pretty limited evidence, but the evidence that we do have suggests they're not particularly successful at getting those kind of men. And actually, the men who come from Africa are recruited from the broad swathe of West and West Central Africa, where slaves are taken from. So we get, we know we've got men coming from um, as far um, west as Senegal and Gambia and as far south as Angola and the Congo. So uh, basically the West Indian Regiment's constitution matches up to uh, the rest of the enslaved population that's brought across the Atlantic. They don't particularly, they're not, they're not able to garner the people who, that they really want to. Um, I think, in terms of the Coromantee, even though that that's what they probably would prefer.
3: Is there a, a sense that that therefore degrades the quality? And Because a lot of this is about nonsense theories, right? And and people just kind of projecting um, in terms of what they think um, is, is desirable. And in reality, uh, today we would look at this and go, you know, what a load of absolute rubbish. Um, but is the sense that these they can't necessarily get the individuals that they are sought after. Are there kind of then comments about, well, you know, if we could get these men from where we think the best men are, then we'd have a better unit that we could do different things with?
4: Yeah, I don't think so. The commentary, such as it exists, all the way through the 1790s, the early 1800s, is generally incredibly positive about these black soldiers they never they never once say oh it'd be better if we got more of these people they sometimes say it'd be better if more of them spoke english um or more of them spoke a decent level of english um but they the, the commanders constantly with with very few exceptions praise their bravery their skill their ability um in sort of bush warfare which a lot of what they're doing is that um their um keenness to um, follow orders, follow commands, uh, their accuracy with firing, all that kind of stuff, all the things you would want in a soldier. They're very positive about, and they. I've never read anything that says, um, "Oh, it, it, it would there be a lot better if we had a lot more people from this at region?" Um, and partly because the slave trade is a lottery, I think, um, and there's there's very little correlation between where you see a slave advertised as being from, and where they might actually be from because a lot of that is marketing um so certain places in certain regions get reputations as being the most docile or the hardest workers and so, unsurprisingly that's where most of the adverts tend to come from <laughs> so regardless of where I they actually come that. From. <laughs> yeah
3: what a surprise um can we just kind of tap on a couple of things that you're you're raising there, which is and we don't worry folks. we will get on to the War of 1812, but this is fascinating. And frankly, we perhaps should have just done an episode entirely on, on the makeup of <laughs> this unit. But whilst we're, we're here and we're talking about it, um, the, the white officer class. Uh, there's a lot of exchange of um, commissions during this period. Everybody knows that if you spent any time reading up on the army and its makeup. Um, and as part of that, you have questions about desirability of certain units, you know, some units have so the, the guards, for example, you get a double rank out of it. Um, you have other units that have higher levels of prestige than others, and therefore they can, the, the commissions carry more value. What's it like when it comes to the West India regiments? Because you've got this double, potentially double um, whammy, if you like, nice technical term there, of not only are you going over to the West Indies, which everybody kind of regards as a potential death sentence? Um, but on top of that, and, and part of the, the benefit of that is that, well, then you might get rapid promotion within that unit because the other officer is gonna die off. But the flip side is that you're also not commanding white troops. And in an age where race is increasingly coming to the fore, um, in terms of what people are talking about, there's the scope for people to then disparage. Well, you know, it's a bit like Napoleon and and the the Sepoy general comment, isn't it? You know, well, you were only the commander of African soldiers, so so what do you really know about soldiering? Is there that issue for for the officer corps?
4: That's an interesting question. I think the uh, white officer, there is is a lot of um, exchanges. There's also a huge amount of absences. So there's a whole load of people who, Officially on the regiment staff, who never actually go to the West Indies, um, but there's a, and, and I've never found any regiment that is fully staffed with its officers. There's always massive holes, um, but there's a, there's usually a dedicated core of white officers who were on the ground and who stayed for quite a long time. So presumably they're the ones who survived La fever, <laughs> but uh, they've got an infection. They've survived, and these men are are often there for quite a long time. And yes, there are opportunities for advancement, but I don't think there's, especially in the Caribbean and the way the warfare is fought, you're more likely to get advancement or to get noticed with your results. And you're more likely to get results with a black regiment than with a white regiment. Just because the white regiments are usually so sick that you can perhaps sometimes put 70 men in the field out of several hundred, whereas you've got a black regiment where you can put 90 percent of the men, four or five hundred of them in the field, and if you can actually show that these are the black men who captured that fort or were instrumental in the you know, the the elimination of a threat or whatever, I mean they win battle honours in the Caribbean in the, in the early 1800s, and that's again something you can't ignore. And I have a feeling that at least some of the officers are actually quite proud of their regiments and what they achieve. Um, regardless of the fact that they are, I mean, they're not a guards regiment. They're, they're never going to be seen as that. And, and you tend to get less of the sort of aristocratic um, man. You tend to get more of the professional soldier who may have bought his commission and traded up and everything like that, but they're the people who take soldiering seriously and not as just an avenue for social advancement.
3: People will shudder to hear me say this, but it's interesting to hear that kind of pragmatic, that pragmatic attitude kind of coming to the fore, but... I've bored people enough about pragmatism on this show so we will move on and one of the ones that I do just want to touch on and I know this is kind of work in progress for you is NCOs within this context Um, and and I guess you know equally are there opportunities for advancement for for black soldiers and and how does that dynamic work where you've got white men potentially white men are quite obviously in positions of authority but then they've got equals within the unit where you've got you know another corporal who's Of African origin um, uh, and has an equal level of authority within the unit?
4: Yeah, there are the commissioned officers are all white, but drummers and corporals and sergeants are both white and black. And some of the most senior sergeants are probably more likely to be white. And certainly in the early years, The NCO, the black NCOs are more likely to be Caribbean born. So they're more likely to be either English or French, but born in the Caribbean and not in Africa. And I think a lot of that is linguistic. Is that they're the ones who can actually follow commands from white officers and get their rank and file to understand. But by the mid 1800s to 1810s, I think you've got African soldiers who've maybe only been here five, ten years and they are in positions of authority they are um sergeants of their own uh, um men and they're on a par with white sergeants they are, they officially they'll, they'll be paid the same they'll be they'll be in, officially in the same accommodation um now we don't have real details as to how that worked in practice but officially, that's what the, that's what the situation would be.
3: It's fascinating, not least because there's always this assumption that racism comes front and centre. And this is the way that, and that's not to say that racist attitudes don't persist in young, I mean, of course they do. They persist in every institution during this period. But the realities of what you have to do on the ground often sort of seem to shove those ideas to one side because you've got a war to fight or you've got a, a unit to, to garrison it and all yeah. the rest
4: of it. Yeah, and you don't know, people who may have been recruited locally in the West Indies, people who are mixed race, maybe even light-skinned, they could maybe pass over that officer bar and get into the officer class as well. Um, it's, it's, again, it's there's not a lot of evidence about it, but um, you know, pragmatism, that's the good word to use here, does trump most things in the, in this period, and the British Army is very very focused on its goals and is not that interested in other issues. So it's it it wants to make sure that it's got an effective fighting unit. And the niceties of racial hierarchies that you get on slave plantations or if you get in in slave societies, then they're, they're less interesting to the army. They're not that bothered about that. What they're interested in is having an effective unit and whatever means necessary to do that that's what they'll do
3: it's so interesting i i really want to now ask the discipline question but i'm looking at how much time we've spent sort of discussing this and i know my listeners will be telling me to shut up about discipline for once in one of these episodes so all right folks i'm going to shut up about discipline maybe we'll come back to it at the end um and we'll talk about deployment within the context of the war of 1812 um Prior to war breaking out, what's the unit's kind of service record like? What's it been doing in its, it's been, kind of recent years? It's
4: mainly been involved in capturing French islands and then recapturing them when they get lost. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it, they, there's, a, there's captures of Guadeloupe and Martinique at numerous occasions. Um, <clears throat> but they're also involved um, in hunting maroons. So they do that in Grenada and St. Vincent and St. Lucia. Um, often these are islands where Maroons are being aided by the French anyway. but it's it's uh, involved in garrison duty in pretty much every British island, and that includes um, Belize and it includes um, what is now Guyana um, on the South American mainland. So pretty much everywhere in the Caribbean where in the greater Caribbean where the British are there's West India Regiment detachments. And usually these regiments are split up into smaller groups. So it's rare that you get one entire regiment in one place. You probably have it split into at least two or three different detachments of, say, 200 or 300 men each. Uh, But their their main headquarters are in uh, Jamaica. There's a Jamaican command, which includes the Bahamas, and it also includes um, Belize. And then there's sort of a windward and Leewards command, which is sometimes in Barbados. Uh, sort of headquartered in Barbados, but join the war is actually sometimes headquartered actually in Martinique.
3: And the further they're split up, and I'm instantly thinking too, and folks will know that I reference headquarters quite a bit on this show, that kind of concept of, of unit cohesion based on shared experience. Does splitting up the unit have a bit of an impact when they're then deployed as a whole? Because I'm guessing when it comes to um, deployment in North America, then you're you're suddenly taking different parts of this sort of separated force and trying to knit them back together again. Do, you, do yeah. you see a kind of a teething problem in doing
4: well, that? Well, I, c- I can see that there would be. Uh, again, there's not a lot of evidence. People don't really write about it, but they would have drawn uh, five or 600 men from f- four or five different places and put them all together on a couple of ships and then sent them. Um, and so that would have been slightly weird because um, they're effectively functioning as four or five mini units, aren't they?
3: Yeah, that's exactly what I was kind of thinking. Um, So in terms of that deployment to North America, how big a leap or not a leap is it uh, in terms of that usage? Because, you know, this this force has been put together predominantly to establish, project, maintain, and in some cases expand British control within the West Indies as a sort of a very specific theatre. When you're then looking at taking that force and sending it onto the, the North American. That's a, a different jump. And particularly in a, a, another region where you've got um, a lot of tensions between the, the British and, and the Americans, quite obviously. That, that's just as, not just as a fact of the War of 1812, but as a residual effect of the American Revolution. You've also got a slave community in the region sure, that's, that's kind of the, this thing of trying to play to that. Um, so, so how big a, a leap is this in terms of use of this unit?
4: Uh, it's the first time they're deployed outside of the Caribbean. And you think of it as the Greater Caribbean, <clears throat> to include Central and South America. So it's the first time they're deployed beyond that um, uh, region. But they have two or three distinct sort of phases in the War of 1812. And they're first used in the Chesapeake campaigns, but only in very small numbers. They're basically involved in recruitment parties um, and the officer corps is involved, particularly because the whole point in the Chesapeake is to entice enslaved Virginians to come and join the army and they're very successful at doing that. So the West India regiments are there both as an example of how to organize the regiments. And that's a really important example. But also to help organize the men, and then these Virginians are organized into groups called the Colonial Marines. So there's not huge numbers of West India Regiment soldiers involved in the Chesapeake campaigns, like, for example, the going and burning of Washington. There are a few, but there are not huge numbers. So they're mainly there as this sort of um, recruitment slash auxiliary, you know, aid force. And then um, in 1814 slash 15. Their biggest deployment is at the Battle of New Orleans, the New Orleans campaign, when the whole of the 1st and the 5th West India regiments are dispatched, which is probably 1,200 men in total. And they probably make up a quarter to a fifth to a quarter of the British force. And that's so rarely remarked on the fact that one of one in four of the British soldiers fighting at the Battle of New Orleans was black. Uh, those are the largest deployments, and then um, there's a final deployment of around 200 soldiers um, from the Second West India Regiment in Georgia in February of 1815, and they're on the ground with white and colonial marine forces to, and they capture Cumberland Island, and they, but by the time they leave, they take off another 1,500 enslaved people. Back to the Bahamas, um, but it's the New Orleans campaign. I think this is the biggest actual deployment of Africans in a in a whole whole scale, and their involvement in that campaign is really interesting.
3: I've instantly got a question there that kind of ties in with um, research that I've done about the British troops when things go wrong and what they love to do, and, and the big thing they love to do is scapegoat and blame anybody outside of their own little kind of social group. So it might be their commanders, notably Wellington, in the case of the Peninsula War. It might be their allies. So, you know, the, the jury is always out on the Portuguese and the Spanish. And particularly when it comes to the Spanish, that inclination to go, you're not one of us, and therefore it's your fault that everything's gone wrong, is really strong, and it's a, quite a dominant theme. With a quarter of the troops at New Orleans being West India Regiment troops. Do you see an equivalent? Is there this sort of scapegoating exercise going on where, well, you look different to me and therefore it's your fault that we didn't succeed?
4: In the aftermath, there is a a blame game and the West India Regiments are blamed, but they're not blamed for their lack of fighting quality. They're blamed for, well, if you boil it down, they're blamed for being black and they're blamed for being black for a weird reason, because They're chosen, part of the reason they're chosen to go to New Orleans is that New Orleans is a tropical area and these are tropical troops and they're used to fighting in hot conditions. They go in December and January. It's absolutely freezing. And so they land them in exposed flat swampland with, in, in light West India dress, you know, they're not in heavy thick clothing, they're in light West India dress. The weather is terrible. It's absolutely lashing down with rain. And then it's well, well, well below freezing. Now, it doesn't often freeze in lower Louisiana, but it did that year. And so basically these troops are suffering from exposure. There's insufficient shelter, insufficient food. Basically, the army's cocked up. It's not provided the uh, support that it should have done. But all the narrative is that, well, these black people, they're not used to cold weather. And so, they, so, so it's the fact that it, the black people got cold that means they weren't an effective fighting force. So, that, so they link the weather and the climate with race to say that's why these soldiers were not, not effective. So, um, but both the American sources and the British sources agree on this, in that it was a failure. Well, one of the reasons the British failed at New Orleans, and I guess most of them would say it's only one of the reasons, but they, but it's a significant reason they failed at New Orleans, was because. They had the wrong type of soldier in the wrong climate.
3: Hmm. There's some kind of mental gymnastics going on there, isn't there? You know, it's it's not our fault for not to find them properly. It's it's their fault for not just being impervious to any kind of weather.
4: Absolutely, and it's that it's that sense that they could be uh, that if if they if they'd invaded in August, they may have had a different outcome. And who knows that maybe that's true um but the conditions were miserable for any human let alone for people who were completely unprepared for it because most of these people uh, most of these men would never have seen frost in their lives so it's a really unusual occurrence because it doesn't freeze in jamaica um but it can freeze in, in louisiana but very rarely but it can so they, they were deep, desperately lucky i guess but it doesn't mean that the army wasn't blameless for the fact that these people were completely unprepared for this weather, um, and I think much less prepared than the White troops.
3: Do you see that in the the, the sickness returns? Is is there actually a greater inclination towards um, illness in in the West India regiments during that campaign?
4: Um, well, the, certainly in the mortality returns the mortality is quite high for the west Indi- both the west indian regiments that go they lose significant portions of their men and um s- some were killed in battle during the actual battle but not that many um most died in the month afterwards now some of them could have been wounded and died for their wounds that's you know we don't know um i think quite a lot probably died of exposure of um a combination of these things probably but the um You don't really see sickness levels that are out of line, but you do see mortality levels that are out of line. So they do lose a significant portion of their men. They exaggerate it in the sources. So the the written commentary um, tends to say, "Oh no, most of the soldiers weren't capable of fighting because they were all frozen. Whereas actually the mortality returns are not as as significant, but they're still pretty weighty. Um, You know, we're talking... Probably more than 10% of the of the unit dies
2: on that campaign. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door.
3: It's not,
4: Um, but it's not half. I mean, some of the commentary is like, oh, half of them died. Well, that's not quite true, but Mm -hmm. significant numbers did die.
3: Yeah, completely. Can I also tap into something that you were sort of touching on there, which is US reaction? Um, And the British are playing a a very devious game here, right? They're trying to stoke uh, an insurrection amongst the, the slave population to a degree. You know, there's this hope that... You know, you can use these troops as a way of turning around to slave populations and saying, look, you know, this is what's possible when when the British are in town. Um, So what's the reaction like in the US? Because you can imagine the concerns that are raised as the British try and play this this devious game. So how do they respond?
4: Well, the US are terrified of the West India Regiments they know what's going on in the caribbean i mean the caribbean's reported on in the newspapers in the us they know they know that there are black units and of course in their mind it also conflates with what's happening in haiti even though they're completely different sort of scenarios they constantly over exaggerate um the numbers of black soldiers so newspaper reports that i think uh, the worst i saw was that somebody said there were 25,000 black soldiers in the caribbean then there's never anything like that i think at any one time the most i've ever seen in in, in muster rolls is around six to seven thousand certainly not 25 and that's if like every single black soldier throughout the entire caribbean is in one place which they never they never are they're always scattered around so the 1200 that they got to go to new orleans is quite is the largest congregation probably of one in, in one one battle one action um so they, they think there's a lot more of them than there actually are um, they do think they're going to incite a slave rebellion, though the British are very clear, the commanders are very clear that that's not allowed. They're not allowed to encourage the slaves to rise up to kill their masters. What they are encouraged to do is recruit the slaves into these colonial marine type units. Um, so they're in, that, uh, But then they would be restrained under white officers. So there wouldn't be, you know, in a slave insurrection, it builds in the in the popular imagination, it's all about rape and pillage and plunder and everybody being massacred. Whereas with white officers, you would have a military-style operation which is more following the rules of war and targeting combatants and not women and children. So that's one of the key differences. Um, that the how the British would would think a bit, but the Americans don't make that distinction. Um and as soon as they see Hundreds, if not thousands, of their enslaved people making their way to British lines, then they're terrified, and they circulate stories of black ferocity, um, very gleefully. As a, and the whole point is that it's meant to be a terror tactic in the South. It's meant to it's meant to frighten them, but it's also meant to distract them, because what the British are really worried about is losing Canada. And the more thought and energy and men that are directed to the South, the less they can put in towards Canada. And in that sense it's quite an effective strategy because the Americans can't take Canada and they don't take Canada. And although the British lose um, at New Orleans and the war sort of fizzles out, the British haven't been, like, defeated in the sense that they were the commanders on the ground were quite happy to continue the war. They they had the men, they had the means, they had the ships. They could have continued, you know, appearing at one place, raiding it, recruiting people, disappearing off again. They could have continued doing that for ages, um, because all they were doing was disrupting sort of this raiding parties. So they were quite happy to carry on doing that. But then the peace comes along and they go, well, fine, okay, we'll stop.
3: So, in in terms of the the army's view within this, I mean, we talked about how actually there, there's an acknowledgement of, you know, these men do some very impressive things. And you talked earlier about, you know, they acquire battle honors over the course of the the war. Are there discussions? And again, this is kind of where where does the line kind of get drawn in terms of race and the use of these men? Are there sort of discussions among commanders about using these troops for for example, the more dangerous task or the more menial ones. You know, th- you do get instances where certain troops from certain units are used to do the the um, um, particularly much later. You know, you, you get um, black troops, particularly in the American army being used for things like unloading munitions um, and, and things like that. Do you see that kind of thing within the British army during this period? <clears throat>
4: Um, Not using the West India Regiments because uh, there's a separate body of black soldiers called the Pioneers. And these are um, attached to white regiments to do exactly what you describe, the menial labour. But these have been around since the 18th century. These aren't new units. um, And the small numbers of them attached to every white regiment. So you wouldn't get the West India Regiments to do that kind of stuff for a white regiment. But you would get the West India regiments to do what you might classify as like labour, but white white troops are doing it as well. So building forts, you know, white soldiers do that. Uh, building military roads, white soldiers do that. So they're not being asked to do things which are only out of line. And, and when they do do that, that's when things like the mutiny in, in Dominica occur, when they feel they've been pushed over a line that they're being treated like slaves. That's when they start to get, they start to push back on it.
3: <clears throat> uh, and what's the response like when they do push back? Because that's a really interesting kind of question there about agency and, and power, the power yeah. dynamics there.
4: Well, well, well if, they, if they cross the line, if they mutiny, then the army is severe and it always is. But it's, but it's severe with every type of mutiny. Yeah. It doesn't, not just this particular mutiny. Um, but they can make representations to commanders in chief. They can make representations to their officers. It's when those representations are ignored. That things get out of line, but usually commanders in chief are very clear that they're not to use uh, West India Regiment soldiers as basically enslaved labor, uh, and they, they they even talk about that in some of the correspondence, saying these are not men who can be used like this. They need to be treated like soldiers, and it's fine to ask them to do laboring work that soldiers do, but it's not fine to basically just use them as ordinary casual labourers that you might hire that's not fair
3: my listeners are going to groan at this but my restraint has just gone at this point I've got to ask the crime and punishment question um and I'll I'll keep it brief for folks because they do hear about this a lot do you see a distinction in in do you see race playing a part in the the types of crimes that are being brought forward in the way in which excuse me the way in which trials are not so much run but Uh, The way in which evidence is handled, you know, do you see testimony from black soldiers counting for less than if it comes from a white soldier? And equally, when it comes to punishments and punishment parade, do you see distinctions? Because there is this talk about um, you have surgeons suggesting that black soldiers are better able to take punishment by the lash and therefore you can and, and should flog them harder and longer. Do you see that playing out in reality?
4: Uh, The last point definitely you do. Um, So what you allude to, what the surgeon commentary is, is that um, black skin is widely interpreted and understood to be thicker than white skin. And this is an idea that's had some currency for a while, uh, certainly go back into the 18th century. Uh, It is linked into ideas that black people don't feel pain in the way that white people feel pain. And the way I measured this was that I looked at um lashes awarded and lashes inflicted, which aren't the same thing, obviously. Sometimes, you know, quite often lashes are remitted. And it's up to the discretion of the surgeon as to when a lashing should stop, as in, you that man has reached his physical limit. You do it because the army doesn't want to kill people necessarily, because that's a waste of a resource. So and they're much more likely to stop a white soldier being beaten at, say, a certain number of lashes than they are a black soldier. So black soldiers get given more lashes. I think we can document that with the statistics. Um, There's very little evidence on black testimony just because a lot of the crimes are dealt with at the regiment level and then they don't keep those kind of testimonies. So we've got some testimony from some of the mutinies um, and there's plenty of evidence that black testimony was listened to and you know, acted on. So I don't think you could say that they were ignored. As to the crimes, I think they're very similar to the rest of the uh, army. I don't think there's that much difference. Uh, There's plenty of people who were done for selling their kit. That's a really common thing. You know, know, why haven't you got your hat or your pantaloons or whatever it is, and it's because they flogged them for money, you know, and they spent the money on whatever, drink sometimes, uh, women um some of the some of the um uh inspection reports say that they they're less likely to be done for drunkenness and of course drunkenness amongst white soldiers in the Caribbean is really really habitual and it's probably the most common thing that white soldiers are done for so I would say that's I wouldn't have said that it's out of it's out of line if anything black soldiers are done less for drinking than but they're often done for the usual things, insulting an officer, uh, being late to parade, being AWOL, all those kind of things are fairly common. Um, but I didn't necessarily notice a racial difference like that, but I did notice a racial difference in, in how punishment is inflicted. And that's got a lot, All it's all to do with ideas about race and what the surgeons think about race. And the surgeons are really key here because they're the people who are on the ground. And there's a body of literature behind to back them up.
3: And tying into what you were saying there about trying to, if you'd like, uncover black voices within this, do we have accounts from these men to shed light on their experience? Because we, there, there's, there's um James A-Town, which always kind of is one of my go-tos when I'm, I'm thinking about this topic because he turns around and says that being Uh, and James a is a white um, member of the rank and file, folks who aren't familiar. He turns around and says that actually the British soldier is in a worse state than the slaves in the Caribbean. Um, And we obviously today look at that and go, okay, get real. But um, it's, so we have that perspective on the experience of, black individuals we do we have any kind of commentary from anybody about views on from either the slave population or from soldiers of their experiences
4: there's almost no black voices that's the real tragedy of this you you're mainly interpreting the west India regiments through the lenses of white sources either white accounts um narratives but also white garnered statistics and and information. The the interviews that were done with the 1802 mutiny are some of the few where you've actually got black voices, where you've got verbatim testimony written down. I can think of very few others, um, which is a shame, but it's always going to be a gap because you've you've always got to think of the practical impediments. These men often didn't speak English when they, certainly when they started, they may have learned enough English to get by. But that doesn't mean they were fluent in English at all. And literacy in general is pretty limited in the Caribbean, even amongst white people. Functional literacy, okay, but actual literacy, you know, pretty limited. Um, Think of the practical issues such as Paper and pen, all expensive. People don't have those kind of resources to do any of that kind of stuff. So, um, and even when you go into the later nineteenth century, you don't see. I mean, this is after the end of slavery, when you've got far fewer regiments. These are um, these are all quite uh, clear reasons why you would never get black voices written down, uh, and the regiments exist until 1927. And yet even in the end of the 19th century into the 20th century, you still don't get black voices. You get some commentary in newspapers in the Caribbean. Um, They're involved in the Ashanti Wars, for example, in the 1870s. Um, You get some commentary around Morant Bay, and that's quite a controversial position for the West India regiments because... That they were then sort of upholding white rule in in Jamaica, but actually from the men themselves, not so much, and that's a real shame.
3: Yeah, that's exactly what I was about to say. That that is a huge pity. Um, one final one. Admittedly, we could talk for the next three hours on this, but you know you have a life to be getting on with, and our listeners probably won't uh, listen to a, another three hours worth of content. Where do we go next? Because this is a topic that. You've shed a lot of light on before that we had um, Buckley's work and sure pe- people know that, you know, I, I love the methodology behind Buckley. I disagree with some of the, the outcomes, um, but nonetheless, we, we've got that. We've got your work. I feel there's a need for more. So what, what are your thoughts on, on where people go? And equally for people who want to read into this, because this is a fascinating topic. What would you suggest in terms of other things they can mm-hmm. get their hands on?
4: There's a lot more you could say about the West India Regiments, a lot more you could say about racing the army, to be fair, um, in the 19th century. So, uh, my colleague at Warwick, David Lambert, is uh, in the process of finishing a book on uh, the visual representations of the West India Regiments in the 19th century and how that changes. And the artworks, there's a lot of artwork which depicts West India Regiment soldiers, um, and especially their transition into the Zouave uniform in the 1850s, which makes them much more exotic. Uh, and they appear in things like the exhibitions that that are around in london in the 1880s and 1890s the Jubilee celebrations for example in eighteen ninety seven. um so he's written that book on that and i think that's a really interesting book um you, you could certainly write more about um their involvement in campaigns in africa because they are used throughout the 1860s and the 1870s in in campaigns against local um tribal groupings as Britain carves out its imperial status in Africa. And then they're still being used in the First World War and afterwards. um, They're the first people who are invading German colonies in Africa. Uh, They're the ones who were involved in it um, quite effectively. Um, I think you could... There's so many more records in the National Archives and probably elsewhere that people haven't delved into um partly because and i i found this a few times um the national archives misfiles things so the west india regiment you suddenly find it some of their stuff is in the india section not in the caribbean section and they've been effectively misfiled by somebody maybe hundreds of years ago or 100 years ago but they you see their subsection is actually in a whole load of records about india and not about the caribbean um so I'm still finding things when I go through the National Archives catalogue and still thinking, oh, oh, this is actually quite useful. Oh, I wish I'd wish I'd known about this source when I wrote my book. Um there's no doubt stuff in the British Library um and in the National Army Museum. There's more stuff that you could you could think about uh in how in terms of how this unit or this this these units interacted and and, um, related to other non-white units. So we have the the, um, Royal Africa Corps, we have uh, the Gold Coast troops, we have troops in South Africa, we have obviously the huge array of uh, units in in India, but there's the Salon regiments. Um, There's non-white regiments all over the place in the 19th century, but no one's really looked at them in relationship to each other. Um, and ha- if they're being treated the same or, or differently. I suspect that the West India Regiments are the template uh, and how these other units are, 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 are managed and run. Um, and then, obviously, some people have written or thought about the legacy of the West India Regiments in Caribbean society today. So if you go and look at the dress uniform of the Barbados or the Bahamas Defence Forces, it's the Zouave uniform, which the West India Regiment wore 100 years ago. So there's a complicated legacy in Caribbean society now of these regiments, uh, and I think that's also quite interesting because that there is a tension there between being pr- proud of a military unit that served the Caribbean for a long period of time, but also a military unit that was instrumental in projecting and enforcing British power in the Caribbean, and sometimes, well, quite often, against the wishes of, the large majority of the inhabitants so there, there is a fundamental you know, tension there but I think it's an interesting thing to explore if you're going to write something more contemporary
3: absolutely I'm desperately hoping that more people do explore this um, not least because I'd love to get my hands on it reading it and you know who knows maybe even writing it myself Tim this has been absolutely fascinating thank you so much for your time before you go just tell people how they can kind of get in contact with you if they have thoughts and questions Uh, i know you're on social media but also where can they find out more about your work
4: they can google me if if you google me at warwick tim lockley at warwick then my um staff page comes up and there's a list of things that i've published and uh, there's my email address on there so people can email me if they're interested and you can follow me on twitter i I mean i don't say much many interesting things on twitter (laughs) so um
3: not sure anybody says much that's interesting on Twitter, no. frankly, but, you know, that's that's by the by. Tim, thank you so much for your time. Just a reminder, folks, Military Medicine and the Making of Race is the book that you want to be trying to get your hands on in relation to Tim's work on the West India Regiments. Tim, thank you so much for your time. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you, folks. I come with good news. If you're a fan of the show, you can now get your hands of more of many, many types of stuff to use one of those famed technical terms if you want to access more of the fan zone you can now do so if you want to join other fans in meetings with me you can now do so if you want to take part in courses in, on ver- and discussions on various topics from this period you can now do so and importantly If you want more episodes, or if you want to request episodes on specific topics, you can now do so. How I hear you cry? Probably. I don't know, I can't actually hear you. Well, go to patreon.com forward slash the Napoleonic Wars pod, where you'll find that for just £1 a month, you can gain access to bonus episodes. These are full length episodes feature length episodes on a whole host of some of your favourite topics. Some of the Marshall episodes are going to be there. Some of the in-depth uh, discussions that we do will be there. Some of the, the big kind of multi round the table type chats are going to be there as bonus episodes that you can download directly for just £1 a month. That is literally half the price of your morning cup of coffee obviously it's a a big ask for those of you particularly at a time like this when there is you know financial hardship going on so i totally understand that some of you folks aren't going to be able to do that Um, that's why there will still be the usual kind of content going out so don't worry if you aren't able to pay you're still going to be able to access napoleonic wars pod stuff a big thank you to My Patreon supporters who are doing incredible things and digging incredibly deep at a very tough time in order to enable this show to sort of try and go to the next level and to push beyond its current remit. Particular shout outs uh, to my mentioned in dispatches folks who are Rob Griffith, Brendan Teeling, John Haynes, Beatrice DeGraff, Lynn Dawson, Lucy Tatner, Jim Deary, Josh Keeney, Andrew Leon, Ryan Diamond, Colin Fieldhouse. Stephen Coulson, Jim Goetz, Jeff Maple, Ed Koss, Indiana Fats, Hugh Brennan, Alistair campbell grieve Andy Meakin, Mark Anscombe, Michael Guest, Bruins Girl, Mark Trowbridge, Mars Reedy, Nick Overland, Graham Goodwin, Rachel Stark, Chris Pramus, Anthony Gumbau, Mark Duckers, Andrew Wright, Graham Spicer, Keyes Bishop, Anonymous American, Martin Pisani and Sam Gurman. Thanks also to the Admirals, who are David Priest, David Maxwell, Rob Coughlin and Graham Callister. The Marshals, who are Roy Muir, Bob Burnham, Marcus Cribb, Matt Bone, Graham Swedenbank, Colin Zimmerman, Ross Flowers and Juo Teixeira. The Emperor, there is only one right now, which is kind of apt, that's J.C. Kaiser. And the Legion de Scholars, Liam Telfer and Todd and Laird Campbell. As I say, folks, to find out more on how you can get your hands on a whole host of perks that put you, the fan, front and centre of a Napoleonic community, head to patreon.com forward slash the Napoleonic Wars pod. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been the Napoleonic Wars podcast. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening.